a new Major League record, 61 home runs by Roger Maris. Hi, kids. That sure was a day for me. Part of the thrill of baseball. The kind of real excitement I've put into my great new game by Pressman, Action Baseball. The score is 2-2. You're up at bat. The pitcher's set, and he can pitch. Fastball, slow ball, curve. Here it comes. A hot single to right. And the next one, uh-oh, a strike. The pitch, a smashing double to left field. Another run batted in. All the skill and excitement of World Series when you play Roger Maris Action Baseball by Pressman. Now you can hit home runs just like Roger Maris. Yes, kids. There's nothing like the thrill of baseball. And now it's yours. Get Roger Maris Action Baseball today, 298. Oh boy, a Pressman toy. Good morning and welcome to episode 592 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Yeah, sure. It's not actually morning as we speak, but this is a fiction that we maintain. Yep. So, listener emails, anything to say before we begin? No. Merry Christmas. Okay, sure. Yeah, same to you. All right, so then let's just begin. Should I take a Christmas-themed question? This is coming from Kyle, the Bitter Phillies fan, who asks, this isn't very technically or even terribly baseball-y, but it could be kind of fun. Who are your favorite or least favorite players that have your name in their name? Oh. Mine is Kyle Farnsworth, because he reminds me of Farnsworth Bentley, the guy with the umbrella who used to dance in music videos in the early 2000s. Least favorite has to be Kyle Kendrick, because I'm a Bitter Phillies fan. Keep in mind that they don't have to have exactly the same name as Bill you. Miller. Bill Miller. Bill Miller. Bill Miller. <laughs> Bill Miller. Huh. Bill Miller. Okay. Bill Miller was my. Bill Miller is a top five player in my uh, in my life in the history of my life. Not spelled the same. <clears throat> he said it doesn't have to be exactly the same. That's why. Well, I he, found that. his conditions are seemingly that their name has to be your name has to be part of their name or vice versa. He cited Armando. Benitez, for instance, or Odrisamer Despain, Despagne. I don't know how to say that name, but Sam is in it. So those would be allowed. I don't know whether spelling changes count. Maybe. Why do you like Bill Miller? Uh, I don't know. He's just always my favorite player. My favorite players were always, they were all, almost always rookies or young players, and they were almost always not great. So my favorite players were J.R. Phillips, Steve Decker, William Van Landingham, Bill Miller. The, that was my that was my my top four. Hmm. Okay. Well, mine is Jose Molina, whose middle name is Benjamin. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> uh, ho, ho, mine could almost be Jose Molina because Sam Sem is in his name. Jose <laughs> Jose Molina. Jose Molina. <laughs> See, Jose Molina. Hmm. His name is Jose Molina. Yeah, that's a stretch. That's probably a bigger stretch than Bill Miller. Uh, oh, good. Benji is his brother. Yeah, I don't like him as much, though. Of course. But, but maybe they are named after the same Benjamin. Hmm. I'm going to see if Yadier's brother. Uh, yeah, actually, Yadier is uh, also, I think, a Ben. Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> Yadier. Yeah, Yadier. Benjamin. His, yeah, right. His middle name is Benjamin also. So 
I could have used any Molina, but Jose, my, Jose's my man. Benji's middle name is also Benjamin. <laughs> really? It seems redundant. It's not. It's Jose. So one oh, is named Benjamin it's... Jose Molina, and the other is named Jose Benjamin Molina. Those Molinas. Endless fun. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. I uh, I don't have a better answer, but Bill Miller's as good as it's going to get. <laughs> okay. Well, you can search baseball reference for the rest of the podcast if you'd like. And give me another answer at the end. Okay. okay. This question, something that we wrestle with often, I think, comes from Andrew, who says, my question is about GMs and the benefit of the doubt. The recent moves of the Oakland A's, I feel, have people who don't understand the moves in one or two camps. There's Billy Bean is a wizard, so he must know something we don't. Or if Kevin Towers made these moves, we'd all be ridiculing them. Actually, we I think we've been in both camps (laughs) over the course of recent podcasts that you have Wait, espoused Billy, both his, of those positions. His, example, his examples were Billy Bean and Kevin Towers? Uh, his, his example, yeah. I, I assume that he's using that based on your comparison oh, that you made. Okay. Probably. But you have, uh, you've also said that Billy Bean probably has a plan and knows something we don't. So you can belong to both of those camps. So my question is this. Can a GM ever reach a point where he has earned the benefit of the doubt or is the past success of moves irrelevant when evaluating a front office decision? Is this a question of what makes good writing, i.e. giving a GM the benefit of doubt makes for a boring, uninteresting column? It's a tough question. It's... No, I mean, uh, 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 so so here's my, my thinking on cereal. I'm going to talk about cereal for a minute. <laughs> Great. I don't believe that there is a plausible answer to cereal like there is no when people say oh well what do you what do you think happened who do you yeah, think did it? right well i don't think anybody did it none <laughs> of the people none of the none of this none of the possibilities that they have offered seem to me 50 percent or greater uh-huh. and th- therefore all of them are unlikely and therefore none of them could po- could be uh, i cannot put my weight behind either of them right and, so i'm stuck having to to go after a plurality that i don't believe in mm-hmm. so then i start using the Bill James model, more or less, of uh, of solving crime, where I assign, you know, kind of guilt values to various things. And of all the things that we know about this case, the it seems to me that the, the most convincing evidence that we have uh, is that a guy was convicted. And that is not 100%. That's not even 50%. However, it is more evidence than we have uh, for anything else. Because you figure 12 people who had way more access to him than we did uh, and who, you know, looked at this dude for a month and stared at him and tried to look into his soul, which is all cereal really was, was looking into a guy's soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all decided unanimously, dude did it. And mm-hmm. that counts for something. I don't know what that counts for, but I'm giving it roughly 30% guilt. Uh-huh. And so to me, <clears throat> just knowing that a jury of his peers convicted him is 30% likely that he did the crime. Now, I can't find anything else about uh, Adnan to add to that. So I'm pretty much stuck on 30 with him. Uh Maybe I can go up to like 38 because Jay doesn't make sense otherwise. However, at most, we're like 38, 40%. But most of that is that he was convicted. And so uh, it's the same way with a a GM. You're not necessarily going to say, oh, well, Billy Bean did this, so I'm 100% behind it. But you're just adding up 
probabilities of mm-hmm. when when you're talking about how to assess these things. And I mean, it's all uncertain. Everything we we look at here is uncertain. It's predicting an uncertain future about a sport that we can't predict. And um, so I would say that just the fact that AGM wanted to do it, particularly if it's a case where he's not under duress, it's not obviously a financial dump of some reason. He, there's no reason to think that he's been snookered. It's not even necessarily a uh, zero-sum thing where, well, uh, two GMs had completely opposite opinions about some player, and so therefore that's a wash. If a, if a GM decides player is worth this, that to me is evidence. And each GM has his own evidence level, I would say. And so to get to the answer of, of this question, uh, every GM has some value. Ruben Amaro wanting to do something is worth some value to me. Um, and different GMs have more value. So uh, I would say that I would go like upwards of 55% for the peak and then as low as maybe like 4% for the bottom. And so that's, a, I guess, a way of answering the question. Yeah, I think that there's a huge, a huge swing in how I assess uh, or how I start looking at moves uh, just based on who did them. And I know that's a weakness, but I think that lot, uh, and, and it's mockable and I've mocked other people for it, uh, but I think it's also logical. So it's not necessarily a weakness or it can be, but oh, it definitely can be a weakness because my assessments of GMs are garbage too. <laughs> right. That's the weakness. Uh-huh. The weakness is I have no idea what the GMs are. And so I'm regressing based on this like mm. weird sort of <laughs> non exact thing to begin with. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, it's a it's a Bayesian thing where it is we a completely Bayesian we, thing. We start with our prior, which is Billy Bean is a good GM or whatever, or it could be that he's wow. been a GM for this, a long time. This Spenyame or whatever his name is is the only player in baseball with Sam in his name whose name is not Sam. Really, the huh. only one now active or all time active, 2014. Uh huh. And the only one, in fact, Wait. Uh, even. Wait, wait, wait. That what? That can't be true. I mean, I've I've got right here in front of me a list of 12, 1187 baseball players who 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 were active last year, and I just did a search, and uh, and there's no Sam. There? There's no Sam. There Sam, are, you know? there, there Sam. are actual players named Sam. I oh. said, I said, oh, his not... name is not Sam. Oh, what about what Sam about... Dyson, Sam Freeman, Sam Lecure, Sam Twavalala? Good what, name. What about? Jeff, Jeff Samarja. Huh. Oh, why didn't that show up? Huh. <laughs> huh. Uh, yeah, you're right. Why, why didn't that show up? Um, that's a good question, Ben. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know why it didn't show up, Jeff. <laughs> huh. Next time on Effectively Wild. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know <laughs> how to answer this. Oh, uh, no, I don't know how to answer this. All right. Well, you keep investigating. So yeah, I. So how do you, how do you approach that as a writer or a person who is called upon to give opinions about baseball transactions? Then do you baldly acknowledge whatever your prior is, and then try to do you do you? Well, you've heard me. If, you've if, heard. if you you've heard how I do it, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of times I will refer to the person making the move and and express some deference to it and but more than anything i just don't i don't rule things to be black or white i i generally am loath to say a move was good or was bad mm-hmm. uh i just say whether you know i i say whether it makes sense from my perspective and then if the gm in question is a significant factor i'll, I'll mention that as well mm-hmm. 
but I it's usually it's it's usually I, I very rarely will have a strongly negative opinion about a move in general, mm-hmm. partly because this is sort of the foundational way that I uh, I look at all of these moves is, you know, you start with the presumption that the person with more information acting in his own best interest with much more to lose than me uh, is doing this for a reason. And then you try to find the reason and you see whether the reason holds up. But, you know, if you start with the presumption that the guy's not an idiot, then you get a, a different sort of transaction analysis. Mm-hmm. And I assume that most of these guys are not idiots. I remember Goldstein one time saying that uh, he thought that uh, there was only one idiot among the 30 GMs. He wouldn't say which one, but he <laughs> said he thought that 29 of them were smart. And there was one one who maybe one, he said, who he wasn't sure about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why we didn't do the podcast about cereal that everyone asked us to do. Because we would have just we would have just deferred to the justice system. <laughs> Not deferred. I <laughs> I placed I placed a certain amount of faith in the jury. Not not a ton of thirty percent right. only. I mean, if you th- look, if you're if you think that a jury is only thirty uh, percent reliable in sending a innocent man or guilty man to prison for life, that's not a lot of faith. <laughs> no, well, there was a segment on the gist this week about that, about the lack of power of eyewitness testimony, or the power of eyewitness testimony, but the lack of accuracy. Um, right. Yeah, people asked me to join serial discussion groups, and yeah. I never, yeah. I felt like I had nothing to contribute to that, because I was what? receiving all the information from a host whose reporting I, I trusted for the most part, but... I, I wasn't going to do any digging of my own. I wasn't going to uncover any new information that that she hadn't covered. And I <laughs> I would have had a, a hard time coming to any conclusion. And I knew that well in advance. So The other thing about a discussion group is, okay, so there were 12 episodes. And mm-hmm. the first six were chasing leads and, and laying out the story. And then the last six were a discussion group. That's all the last six were. We were all in a serial discussion group for the last six episodes. Mm-hmm. So you didn't need to have a separate one. No. <laughs> all right. Uh, next question comes from Mike in Philly. With an increase in teams employing shifts, I have noticed players trying to beat the shift by bunting down the third baseline. If the bunting tread continues, could you see teams employing a super shift where the left fielder would come down to cover third in case of a bunt? Or would teams be too afraid to leave such a gaping hole in left field that they would rather the player get on via the bunt? Yeah, I think that, um, I don't think they would. I, it's hard for me to see it unless it, it would have to be extremely extreme. The The thing that makes the shift, uh, I guess, tempting, uh, you're sort of tempting the hitter but not tempting him quite enough, is that it's only a single. If it started becoming a triple, that would be a problem. And but the other thing is that it's it's hard to hit a grounder the other way, but it's easy to hit a fly the other way. If you try to go the other way, the natural swing, the natural spin coming off the bat is likely to be uh, fly ball spin. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually it seems to me that it's much easier to hit a fly ball the other way than it would be to hit a ground ball the other way. That's somebody who true. Somebody, somebody who has any idea what baseball is can can correct me. Because I'm, I might be wrong, but in my experience... Well, that's true. Most most ground balls are pulled and most fly balls are hit yeah. the other way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Brandon from Chicago wants to know, what's the best baseball-related holiday present you've ever received? 
could also expand this to include all present occasions if you'd like. You have any? A uh, baseball present that I received. Yeah. Oh man, I don't remember what presents I've received. I one time, I, you know, I played baseball as most did, and I was uh, I was an all star once. One year I was an all star, and uh, that year it's better than <laughs> Nick Markakis. <laughs> there was the our city had our city's league had kind of like uh, an all star jacket that you'd get if you were an all star, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I got the all-star jacket for my birthday that year and it was it was expensive I mean it wasn't like they didn't just give you the all-star jacket this was like a fundraising thing it was just like you know 110 bucks for some cheap jacket but I got that and that was probably the greatest present I ever got I wore it everywhere I never made the all-star game again but <laughs> and eventually you traded it in for a black hoodie that you never removed thereafter yeah that was a pretty good present that was a pretty good present then hmm. I I've gotten very few baseball-related presents because no one in my family knows or cares about baseball particularly. So I don't think any of them really felt confident giving me a baseball gift. If you're going to give a baseball writer a baseball gift, you have to know something about baseball or else you won't be confident. I got, you know, I got baseball prospectus. My first baseball prospectus was a present. I wouldn't have spent the money myself at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. as a 22 23 year old kid who wasn't used to paying for anything uh, so i don't I, yeah i got this i got a subscription to the site for my for christmas one year and then the next year i got i got the annual so that was pretty great huh i had to pay my own way my baseball prospectus experience mm-hmm. i did i did get a uh, my girlfriend gave me a poster print of outlines of all the stadiums superimposed on each other so that you can see where the shallow fences and deep fences and oddly shaped fences are. And there are like little cutouts at the bottom, outlines of what each field is shaped like. I have that hanging in this room right now. So that's something. I got dollar sign on the muscle a couple years ago. That was a good one. Uh-huh. We didn't get that for free. I got it later for free. Uh-huh. I got the uh, I got the original uh, mm. first, and then I got we, we later got the reprint for free. Uh-huh. All right. Play index? You have a? Do you have another you ask, impossible quiz for me? Or are you? Ask, wait, wait, wait. Ask this. Ask the one about the Jeff Sullivan tweet. Because uh-huh. I, I have an answer. This is from Eric Hartman, and he wants to know what is Jeff Sullivan's greatest tweet. I I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. However, I will say that there were uh, there was a day in October where I had to look something up from the previous year's postseason. And so I, uh, I stumbled onto an old, I stumbled, I had to look for something Jeff Sullivan had tweeted. And so I had a month of his tweets in front of me and I was looking through them. <laughs> yeah. and this was at like, you retweeted like eight of them like, in a row in I the middle of the night, like 40 of them. In a row. <laughs> uh-huh. And it was all within a month and it was an incredible display of, of tweeting. But there were three in particular that I loved and have, I think, retweeted more than once in my life. And so I will say, I'll just say these are my top three in order. Okay. Number three, you've reached the age where you've learned a thing or two, and this is the sensory motor stage, and you are an infant. <laughs> like the uh, Viagrad, you know, Cialis ad. Mm-hmm. Reach the age where you've learned a thing or two. Uh, all right, number two, Dombro- if this one you have, to, you've see, you have to have seen the picture of Dave Dombrowski's son at the in the postseason because he mm. wears yeah he right. in, very fancy dresser 
Dombrowski's son is wearing a jacket of dead chameleons that in their last living moments were standing before the world's ugliest jacket. (laughs) (laughs) And number one. Number one. GM. And the... GM. Hear that? Hear that buzzing? GM. Shh. GM reaches under desk. GM pulls out bow tie shaped microphone gm i know who did this <laughs> ken rosenthal jokes ken rosenthal jokes bow tie shaped microphone <laughs> that's all i like that one partly because the bow tie shaped microphone but partly because of the implication that it's buzzing that ken rosenthal has a spy microphone that buzzes <laughs> yeah i like that he plants a spy microphone but does it in an easily identifiable way? It's his <laughs> signature spy microphone. Yeah. <laughs> if you find it, you know immediately who it is. Uh, okay, play index. Do you have another impossible quiz for me about who's 18th on a team's sacrifice bunt list? No, it's not impossible, but I guess it's a a little bit of a of a quiz. It's not barely a quiz. I, I just want to ask you a question. Um, what percentage of players who play one year in the majors? do you think play two years in the majors? Hmm. You know, two or more. How many players who make a debut mm-hmm. play in a second season? Hmm. I'll say 83%. Hmm. Uh, that's high. It's 74%. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I did, I went to Play Index. I had a question about this. I wanted to see basically how many make it to 20 years. So I did this year by year, and, and uh, I looked to see... Uh, how many players played their first season in, you know, every given year and added it up, and then how many played in their second season in any given year and added added all of them up. So uh, sixteen thousand, basically sixteen thousand players have played in the majors. Seventy four percent made it to a second year, and so then would you? So knowing seventy four percent, how many of players who made it to two years would you guess made it to three? Slightly, slightly higher. Eighty eighty percent. Okay, and so what do you think the curve would look like if you were to to chart the uh, the attrition rate? Uh huh. Um, I would guess that it would be gradually increasing up to let's say say five or something, and then steadily decreasing after that in an exponential kind of curving way. Pretty. Pretty close. Pretty close. So you said 80% for year three. It is exactly 80%. Okay. You said it would dec- it would rise until year five and then start declining. It actually rises until year eight uh-huh. and then starts declining. Okay. And it doesn't decline very quickly, though. So year eight is 86%. Uh, 86% of players who play seven years make an eighth. Uh, and then it's 85, 83, 82, 80, 77, 78. So year th- if you've made it 13 years, you are eight, 78% likely to make it 14 years, which is uh, roughly the same as, as year three. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's a very, very slow decline. So it's the first year at which you are less than 50% likely to come back. Well, uh, it, is at, it is at earliest year 22. <laughs> because I didn't go past year 21. Year uh-huh. 21 is 66%. Uh-huh. Year 20, though, is uh, is very low. Year 20 is 62%. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so if you played 19 years, you were still only 62% likely to play 20. And that surprised me. I would have maybe hypothesized that it would be, uh, it would never go down. That it would essentially, obviously, at some point it has to go down because at some point it's going to go from, you know, it's going to reach zero. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I thought that maybe, that maybe being around longer would just consistently uh, guarantee that you are more likely to be around for even still longer. Mm-hmm. And I see why it's not. I mean, I understand why it's not that way. And and it makes sense. The mechanics of, of the decline make sense. But I still kind of thought that it wouldn't be. I was, I'm a big, you know, like mo- the one of the analogies in the world I use most or one of the pieces of junk pop science that I use most is the, I, I've mentioned it, I'm sure on here before, the idea that a house that is 50 years old is more likely to be standing in 50 years than a house that is 10 years old or five years old or one year old that basically mm-hmm. being old is a uh, correlates to to living longer uh, even going forward and um, if you're a thing not if you're a human necessarily <laughs> but a thing um, and so I would have thought but anyway it's not it's the curve that you were expecting it's exactly what you were expecting one interesting thing that I discovered while doing this is that um, I, since I did this by year, what I did it in play index is I basically looked to see uh, how many players met a criteria in each year, and so the filter would be you know uh, second year in the league, for instance, and played appearances zero or greater. So basically, just appeared in a game in any capacity would count you, and um, and so then I would see how many there were for each year. So for instance, um, uh, for tenth year players. Uh, in 19, you know, 1951, there were 17 players who were active and were in their 10th year, uh, whereas in 2008 there were 46. And that makes sense because the league is is much bigger. You have a lot bigger player pool. So, of course, you're going to have more players making it to year 10, right? Mm-hmm. And um, But as you get higher, as you get to you know year 10, year 11, year 12, year 15, year 17, you start to see a lot. You start to see a dip in the 2012, 2013, 2014 years, mm. which is somewhat, uh, which is in keeping with research that has shown recently that the aging curve has changed dramatically since steroids were tested, right? Mm-hmm. You, you referred to this in your annual essay. I did. And uh, so it makes sense that there would be fewer old players, I guess, more or less, in 2014. And so I thought, oh, well, this is another piece of evidence. And yet, then I looked more closely, and the, the year-to-year noise in this is so extreme. So I'm going to give you an example of the noise. The most, for year 10 players, uh, 10, 10 years exactly, 2004 is the most common year for 10-year players, which is right in the middle of the steroid era. Mm-hmm. 66 players who played in their 10th year, which is 20 more than played this year, for instance. And... Uh, you know, it's a big spike. It's a big, it's a big difference. But then I was like, oh, so what's 2003 and what's 2005 and 2003 was 34. So half as many. So in 2003, there were 34 and in 2004, there were 66, which is kind of crazy that there was just this huge bubble of players who debuted basically in 1995 who were aging along, and 
there was simultaneously a big trough in players who debuted in 1994. Although I guess that maybe makes a little, maybe that's because there was no September. That's why, isn't it? Because there was no September of 1994. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So there were, there were no call-ups. <laughs> that's right. And so nobody yeah. made their debut in 1994. So that's it. We answered it. Hmm. It's rare that we actually answer a question that we yeah. are wondering about. It's nice. Uh, Good feeling. Yeah, so that's kind of weird. I'm going to see how many how many people debuted in 1993, 1994, and 1995. And I'm going to do first year of career. So in 1993, 203 players debuted. In 1994, 114. And then in 1995, all that pent-up debut anxiety came out. 247 players. So there actually was a huge bubble, and it had a logical explanation. Hmm. That's interesting. I've been thinking for a while as I was writing that essay. One of the things I referenced in that essay was just the amount of league-wide wins above replacement that are produced by over 30 players and under 30 players. And basically the, that, that era was the only time in baseball history when there was more value produced by over 30 players than under 30 players. So I've been thinking back to that time. And at the time it was, you know, before either of us was writing really, but the, the standard sort of internet saber metric position was kind of, or even in the aftermath of that time was kind of minimizing the PED thing or, you know, not, not drawing a direct line from PEDs to the offensive environment and coming up with lots of alternative explanations. Maybe the ball was different or the ballparks were smaller or conditioning or whatever. Whereas the kind of hot take columnist standard responses, you know, look at what all these steroids are doing to the game. And I'm wondering, do you think it's safe to say that, that the hot take was closer to the truth than the more reasoned take that when you look at that dramatic change to the aging curve, even if not every guy who hit 40 home runs was taking something, maybe that's still too simplistic to say, but the fact that there was that dramatic change to the pattern of aging sort of suggests that that there was something that was really affecting everything, that, that minimizing that was perhaps an over-response. Uh, I'm not I'm not ready to say that, so I'm going to pass on answering this right now. Uh-huh. I don't. I'm not. I don't want to be wrong twice. If I was wrong <laughs> once, I don't want to be wrong twice. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to take every possible position <laughs> in the hopes that one of them eventually uh, is uh, is in a seat when the music stops. So mm. I'm just going to go ahead and and pass. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's something I've been thinking about. Uh, So that is it for the Play Index segment. So we remind you, as always, to subscribe using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right. A couple more. Let's take one from Mike D. in St. Louis. I always enjoy Mike D. questions. He wants to know, would the Hall of Fame be improved if there was a cap on the number of players? There are currently 246, so maybe go up to 250. Would older and lesser-known players start being eliminated first? Then each year there could be an additional debate on who should go as current players are voted in. So that would double the amount of intrigue or 
discussion, which some people enjoy and some people find tiresome, but this would be not only electing people, but then having to find people to kick out. It would be the ultimate Hall of Fame reality show, voting people off the island. I think that the danger is that people wouldn't want to elect people if it was going to come at the expense of somebody else. Mm. And and I don't think that there's a – I think it's an arbitrary decision. Like to me that's a restriction that has no particular logic behind it. The league has been played for more years. It's like saying that if you – you know, it, you could only have 50 World Series champions. And so, uh, you know, every time a team wins one, you have to, you know, go steal some other team's rings because you, you can only make 50. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't have more than 50. Uh, so I, it doesn't seem to necessarily make a lot of sense. ESPN, by the way, has a capped Hall of Fame for baseball. A hundred, they did a list about two years ago of the hundred greatest players ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, they re- revisit it every year. And if somebody goes in, somebody else gets kicked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. The danger there, as Mike suggested, is that, I mean, at first it would, it would, probably be a good thing i mean at least in terms of the quality of the player pool well it would constantly make the quality of the player pool higher but but at first you would have low-hanging fruit the the people you know the veterans committee selections that people always cite as the worst hall of famers so you could go quite a while just getting rid of those guys before anyone would mind that anyone was kicked out but eventually you would have to start removing people who meet the the current standards and maybe there would be a temptation to just kick out the old people that no one living saw play. Yeah. And, and that's the, I mean, yeah, that's the problem because the whole point of this is to remember people. And so if you're kicking out people people because you don't remember them, (laughs) I barely remember that guy. Why do we need a museum for him? I barely remember him. (laughs) Put in a guy I know who I I see on uh, the pregame show. Every 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 Saturday. I know. Why do they have so many fossils in the Natural History Museum? <laughs> <laughs> we don't need those anymore. They're not even around. Um, all right. Uh, let's. Well, we got another philosophical trade question from Eric Hartman, who asked one last week about whether we prefer veteran for veteran trades or veteran for prospect trades. This week, he wants to know. Which kind we prefer? Trades where one, where both teams seem to benefit, the win-win trade, or where one gets swindled, the win-lose trade? Definitely that. The win-lose? Definitely. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. Love a good swindle. <laughs> yeah, me too. Gives <laughs> me something to root for. Although, yeah, the more it seems like a swindle, the harder we look for an explanation that makes it not a swindle. But uh, but it is it is more interesting because the win-win, all you can really say is that one team needed this thing more than that other team needed it, and they both helped out each other, and that's great. I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe nicer people prefer win-win trades. Maybe this makes us bitter. We want to see someone lose. Yeah. All right, you're done. That's it for this week. If you are celebrating Christmas, we hope you have a, a nice Christmas. If you're celebrating having Christmas off because other people are celebrating Christmas, then we hope you also have a nice week. We will be back next week for, I guess, a couple more episodes uh, before the year is over. 
So please send us emails for then at podcastbaseballperspectus.com. Please support our sponsor, as we mentioned. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And give us a gift if you would be so kind as to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And maybe recommend to some family members the fine baseball podcast without which you would be lost. We will be back next week. I wonder, uh, yeah, no. (laughs) Edit that out. (laughs) Okay. Two minutes, (laughs) 30 seconds into this thing, and we are editing already. (laughs) I wasn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You have to do a lot of editing on this episode. (laughs) 